I'm really pumped today to be able to welcome my good friend to the Passion and Purpose podcast. And in this first season, we've had a lot of amazing people on, and you could have been one of those people easily. Just your experiences in life, um, leading Catalyst for a season, the great impact that you had doing that. Um, and then now being someone who's advising people, helping people maximize the vision that they have for their organization, their church, their life. Um, you're an author. You speak on leadership. You help people think better about the things that God's called them to do. But today, you have agreed to be the interviewer. Come on. On the Passion and Purpose podcast, because I, I wanted to be able to talk about Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table, and I just want to be able to talk in general. And as I'm interviewed through the course of life, some of the interviews I look forward to the most are the ones that I do with you. And you've interviewed me for the Catalyst podcast, for your own podcast, and every time I walk away feeling like, wow, I really enjoyed that. And that's not to say I don't enjoy a ton of the podcasts that I'm a part of, but yours always rises to the top and you have a natural ability, a knack for getting people to talk. So don't get me to talk too much, but get me to talk just the right amount today. But this is Brad Lomanek, everybody. I'm sure he doesn't need an introduction to most people listening today, but welcome Thank to you. the Passion and Purpose podcast. And thanks for being willing to sort of reverse the roles a little bit I today. I get, I get to ask the questions. And so, uh, by the way, you've been rolling out some some strong interviews on the Passion and Purpose podcast. So it's fun to be in the... Uh, in the lineup here. But I, I do have some questions for you. Well, I pass the baton and um, let's get this thing started. All right. So let's start with this. Um, you know, lo- low level question What is it about you that we don't know? And I say we, meaning the audience listening, that you want us to know. What is, what is the thing that you would say, man, I, I would like to tell people about this side of me? personally, that you, uh, you're you probably pretty confident we're not aware of? Man, that's a great question. Wow. Coming out with a low-level question. Yeah, that was just, a, a just a softball right down. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, just let's dig right in right uh-huh. away. Yeah. Well, my life's pretty public, so there's not a lot going on that you know I haven't <laughs> talked about, preached about, used as an illustration at some point in life. Or let people know about. I'm, I think most people are surprised to find out that I'm highly introverted. Um, a lot of guys uh, and ladies that are in the public sphere are introverted, as it turns out. And our our gifting or my gifting is very public, but my my personality trait tends toward being very private. And so that would probably be the number one thing that a lot of people who don't know me and aren't around me would be surprised by. I'm not the life of the party. I'm not always trying to get 35 more people on the bus. I'm not looking for one more thing to do today. I'm kind of that guy that likes to speak in a stadium full of people and then just kind of slip out the back door and head home. It is interesting that there are so many strong communicators, folks who stand on stages and inspire and teach and that are similarly wired that way. You know, in the old days before video really was a thing, and most of my messages were uh, communicated around the world on cassette tapes and cassette tape series and 
people be listening to a message at home, but they couldn't watch something on YouTube because that didn't exist or see any kind of video format. And then I would go to a church to speak. And so here comes this guy, Louis Giglio, with the Italian name. And someone would all, I mean, I got this all the time. I've been listening to your messages for years. And then you came to our event or to our church. And I was like, okay, it's the first time I'm going to see this guy. And in my mind, you were short, <laughs> fat, bald Italian dude. Everybody told me that. So I guess I have the short, fat, bald Italian voice, but it was surprising. I'd walk in, I'm this, you know, little kind of, you know, dude with hair. Uh, and now, you know, gaining on the fat guy side of it. But, oh, um, come on. but in the early days, you know, people were like, I just had you as being this different guy. And I think that people, when they see me now or see a lot of guys and, and a lot of people who do what I do, they just say, you guy, you're so comfortable in front of people and you have a big personality and you seem like you're just at ease and all that's true. I am very at home in front of a lot of people, you know? Have you gotten more introverted or more, um, you know, sort of the idea you go on stage and then you sort of want to get in the corner and be by yourself or talk to one person? Is that, has that become more prevalent the bigger the audience Meaning when you look back at high school or middle school or even college, were you equally as much wired that way? Yeah, even from when I was a little kid. I mean, I was the kid that went in their room and shut the door and didn't come out for three hours. And just whatever I was into in there, I would kind of go a mile deep. So that's kind of more my personality. Kind of get in a lane, get in a zone, go really deep into something, whether it's I'm drawing something or I'm taking something apart, or as a kid, I was trying to create a piece of art or whatever it was, and I'd be in there for who knows how long. And it just was the way I was created and the way I was wired, I think. And then all of a sudden, I realized, oh, I have this gift of my life. And of course, that started out with me sharing with 12 people. You know, my my first group of people I ministered to was the youth group at a little church north of here near Gainesville, Georgia. And the pastor became a friend and a mentor to me. And he said, hey, we don't have a youth pastor at our church. Would you come on Tuesday night, lead our youth group? And I'm like, absolutely. Are you kidding me? I'd walk up there from here on and was Tuesday this college? Night. Was this, this is college, college era? And so I would hustle on up there on Tuesday and put 12 folding chairs around in a semicircle and have kids show up. There was no music, no worship, just me kind of being nice to kids and then teaching a Bible study and going home. It was the biggest thing going on planet Earth. That was, to me, um, more than I could have imagined that God would let me do that. But as that happened, you could see that there was a there was something going on there. And I couldn't really see that, and I wasn't trying to project much. But I remember one time, and this might sound totally uh, dorky and come out the, the wrong way, but I worked at First Baptist Church Atlanta in my later mid to late college years, and sometimes overlapping when I was still going to this little church on Tuesdays. One afternoon, I remember walking into our what we called the sanctuary at the time, and it was big, 3,000-seater downtown Atlanta, all the lights were off except the exit lights above the doors. And I just walked in. I'd never been on stage behind the pulpit before. And the pulpit was, you know, the size of a tiny house. And I walked up behind this huge pulpit and I just stood there for a moment. I was like, yeah, I'm going to stand here one day. I know I'm going to stand here one day. And it wasn't weird. It wasn't it wasn't me trying to project myself into the future. It was just me knowing somehow this is what 
I'm going to end up doing in life. And so I could kind of see that, but then I'm right back at the 12 kids at the thing mm-hmm. on the next Tuesday night. And it was many years before I stood behind that pulpit. I did ultimately preach behind that very pulpit. That sanctuary has been torn down now. There's a high-rise building on that place of land right now. And I did eventually preach behind that pulpit a few times, one of them probably one of the two or three most significant times I ever preached in my life. Um, I talk about it a little bit in Not Forsaken in the book. but So the crowds have gotten bigger, but I still— I still feel the same. I don't really have a tremendous need to um, to be in the limelight. Mm. I actually kind of feel more comfortable just, you know, getting on my bike and going on a 30-mile ride by myself and thinking about life. Well, this is the Passion and Purpose podcast. Great name, by the way. Uh, good with the, the, the three Ps. Purpose. What, how would you define or describe your, your purpose? Very simply, I believe that I'm on planet Earth today to bring glory to God. And that is about the simplest and the most clear thing I know about me, is that I was made by God and for God, and that whatever I'm doing, the end of that ultimately somehow has to be to shine a light on Jesus and that became a, a massive part of my story um, in the years following my grad school era. And I've told this story a lot, but hearing John Piper preach for the first time about the glory of God, I'd never heard a message in my life really specifically about the glory of God. And Brad, there are a few moments in life where all of a sudden, I, I call them life revelation moments. And to qualify for that, for me, you have to find something that's on every page of the Bible. So getting saved, obviously, is a life revelation moment. And then you look from Genesis to Revelation, and being saved is on every page of the Bible. Um, The grace of God for a Tuesday was a revelation for me as a college student. I knew that the grace of God was going to get me to heaven, but I wasn't struggling with getting to heaven. I was struggling with being a Christian (laughs) on Wednesday. And when I learned about the exchanged life, that it's no longer Christ, but I, it's not longer I, but Christ who lives in me, it revolutionized my life. And I realized that it wasn't about me trying harder. It was about me dying more often. The third big revolution and revelation in my life was worship. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church, and we sang hymns, had powerful worship. I got teary-eyed a lot of Sundays singing hymns with the choir and orchestra at church. But I didn't know what worship was. No one had ever preached a sermon on worship until I was about 24 years old. And then I discovered, oh, worship is everything I do in life done in such a way that it brings glory to God. So work is worship, and giving is worship, and my exercise is worship, and everything in my life is worship. And that was a complete and total revelation to me. And then the the other one was glory. And when I heard Piper speak at a conference I was at, I was speechless. I could not form a sentence after the message he gave 
on living for the glory of God. And I was like, where have I been? And I just started tracking back through the scripture. He delivered them out of the promised land for his glory. He, he met them in the desert for his glory. Christ died for his glory. The whole scriptures are for his glory. The church exists for his glory. Worship is for his glory. Heaven is for his glory. The cross was his, for his glory. Everything is about magnifying his name and when I saw that, it just clarified everything for me, and I wish I'd seen it a lot sooner. So now we preach that message all the time. It's at the heartbeat of passion. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So whether you're a technician or a musician or a physician, great. doesn't really matter. If that's your passion, then go for it. Run for it. Be the best at it. But do it in such a way that ultimately— being a technician or a physician or a musician, it brings people closer to Jesus. Love that. How, how did you decide or know this is a this is a wrestling that a lot of us have, especially early in life? What the expression of that would be, whether it was going to be a pastor or a communicator or a Bible teacher or what what was that process like? And especially thinking about the person who hears that and says, Louie, me too. I, I mean, I feel like I, part of my call and purpose is, is to bring God glory. Then the question of through what or how or, you know, what's the assignment? How, how did you discover that? I think there are three components in it, at least are, there are for me. There's one, there's the internal engine. And most everyone has something that uh, keeps them up at night. Something that when they go in the room and shut the door and three hours go by, it was because they were thinking about this or working on this or reading about this or developing this skill. It's the thing that wakes them up in the morning. That's that's our passion. And it's everyone has something that they're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be a whole life arc. You could be passionate about business in one season of life and passionate about fashion in another season of life. But it's the thing that drives you. So that's one component. The second and in, in, very important component is what is the the chorus of the family say hmm. the family in in the story of scripture were the deciders of what your passion was they called out people and said you're going to be one of the servants you're going to be the teacher you're going to be the helper you're going to be the exhorter they would just recognize the gift that's on you, call you out. That's what you're going to do. And the church has a role to do that with people, to help identify that in people. And then the third component for me is calling. And that's the the God voice coming into the story that you don't see coming, you can't plan for, but arrest you in your track. So for me, dial it back to college, my passion was tennis. It's all I did all day. I'd go to school just to get out of school so I could go play tennis. I'd play tennis till till you couldn't play tennis anymore. And that was year after year after year after year. And that's all I wanted to do with my life. But um, meanwhile, I'm getting leadership in the youth group and leadership in the college group at church. And people are saying to me, you Hmm. are the next Billy Graham. And, you know, of course, I'm I'm not, and no one else is. There never was one. But when people are saying that to you, you're like, oh, okay, I was just trying to do a little Bible study on the mission trip. But they're like, oh, man, you are going to preach to the world. You have a gift on your life. You have anointing on your life. And I'm like, ah, I'm going to be a tennis player, but thank you very much. That's awesome. But then the tennis door closed because I wasn't good enough, and I got hurt. 
before I even got to tryouts really in college. So that door closed and it was like, okay, what happened? And I've got these voices of the community saying, there's an anointing, there's something on your life and it has to do with communicating specifically. And then God spoke and broke in. And on a certain night, uh, laying in my bed in an apartment in Smyrna, Georgia, heaven came in. Mm. And it it was undeniable and a little terrifying. And I said, oh, if this is you, <laughs> the answer is yes. And that was a process of me going to Dr. Stanley and saying, I think the Lord's calling me to preach. Him leading me through a several-week process of praying through that, reading scripture through that, and letting that settle into my heart, and then me finally forming a sentence in my mouth for the first time to the world saying, the Lord has called me to preach. So that's how, you know, in a very short window of time, all that happened in a several-month period of time. It's not that. It's going to be this. God has affirmed it. God has called so I'm sitting here today, Brad, not really resting on, well, tennis didn't work out and I wasn't good enough anyway. And people told me I should be a communicator and I was good at that. I'm not here for either of those. I'm sitting here because God called me hmm. to be a proclaimer of his word to my generation. And at the time, I thought that meant being a pastor because that's about the only lane you could get in. Being an entrepreneurial college ministry movement starter wasn't one of the options. <laughs> that wasn't on the, ch- the checkbox list? There were seven boxes. Youth <laughs> pastor, missionary, education director, pastor, associate pastor, evangelist. And I just kept looking at those boxes all the way through college going, hmm, not sure about which of those boxes I'm going in, but I'm called. Went to seminary thinking, I'll figure out my box. Went through seminary, grad school, still not sure about my box, went to second grad school, and a young college sophomore said to me the day or two before I went to grad school at Baylor, God's bringing you to our campus for a reason. And in that moment, I went, yep, he is. That's why I'm on this track. We started a ministry at Baylor in someone's apartment that 10 years later, 1,500 college students were coming on a Monday night just to sit under God's word. And that's been our track from there to here. I still don't think I've hmm. checked any all in the boxes off good, you know, <laughs> but just trying to follow step by step where God leads. And it always feels like the movement leaders like yourself and Shelly, you look back and, and everybody wants to say, well, okay, what was the strategy? Mm-hmm. How did you decide? And I, I've heard you say this so many times, you know, when the wind of God blows, you put the sails up. And that is such a powerful, but yet also, um, in some ways, numbing display for so many of us because we go, well, that didn't help me. How do I know? Is for you, like when you look back over the last 30 years, is there a, okay, this is the practical one or two things that you've learned? Well, yes, I've learned what you just said, put the sail up. You know, that's the key to life. Jesus said the wind blows where it will. Nobody knows where it came from and no one knows where it's going. Such is the wind of the Spirit. And he's speaking specifically about salvation and how salvation arrives in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't know when and where it's coming, but all of a sudden, here we are. We're Our eyes are opened and we're born again into the grace of God. 
But it also, I think, is applicable for how the Spirit leads us. And I'm definitely not um, anti-planning. I'm not anti-strategy. We do both here in within the Passion Movement. We plan and we strategize every single day. In fact, we have today. But at the end of the day, I want to get to the finish line and have a young person come alongside me and say, teach me how you did what you did. And I want to be able to say to them, I have no idea how we did what we did. I do know that we put the sail up every day and that the wind took us where God intended to take us. And so if someone were to come alongside and say, how do you walk with God? I'd like to be able to tell you how to do that. If someone said, how do you stay in love with the scripture? I'd like to be able to help you with that. But if someone said, how do you build a ministry or how'd you get from point A to B? I'm kind of pretty happy to say, I don't know. Because if you do know, then it might not have been as much wind as it was a plan. And I really don't think the world needs more plans. I don't think that John Wesley was riding a horse across uh, from town to town with a real big strategy in mind. I think he was moved by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, preached in the Spirit, wrote songs in the Spirit, and uh, died in the Spirit and went to heaven in the Spirit. And I don't think I've seen the John Wesley blueprint for how you shape a movement and start a revival. So let's just keep putting the sail up every day. Good. All right, I want to ask you about the book, uh, Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. It's such a powerful book. There, there's a lot of people writing, have written the last year about the battle of your mind. Um, so, so specifically, how do you... And how would you advise or how would you help us to understand taking a thought captive? Such, such is hard, but is there things that we can do that are really practical that you've done in, in regards to that? Taking a thought captive, I think, requires, Brad, that we identify the thought. And that's maybe the, the biggest and the easiest takeaway from this book because normally what happens in the flow is the thought comes into our mind and we don't examine it. We don't question it. We just start dealing with it. Oh my goodness, I feel afraid right now. So how do I react to being afraid right now? I, I, uh, I'm going to think about this or worry about this or go call a friend or start taking certain actions. Instead of just taking a huge step back and go, wait a minute, what thought just came in my mind? What fear just came in my mind? Okay, where did the fear come from? So I'm going to investigate this fear. I'm going to question it, and then I'm going to decide at what level this thought gets to have a seat at my table. And so if there's one simple takeaway from this book, it is that you don't have control of the thoughts that come into your flow, but you do have control of how long they stay Mm, in your flow. And so if you can just get that little takeaway, it's a simple, practical step. And so in the book, the way I talk about it, before you can take a thought captive, you have to decide, does it need to be taken captive? And the way I do that is just by asking the question, where did this thought come from? And so if I'm uh, angry right now, 
or if I have a revengeful thought or uh, I'm going to get even or I'm going to prove myself or I'm going to worry about this outcome, I ask, where did that come from? And immediately, if I'm walking with God, I know, does it match the character of God, the person of God, the heart of God, the will of God? And most importantly, and clearly, does it match the word of God? Hmm. And if it doesn't, not going to get to stay here. I don't know how you got here, but you can't stay here. I don't know how you arrived in my mind. I mean, I heard someone say the other day, we think 9,000 thoughts a day. Somebody else said 90,000 thoughts a day. So who knows how many there are? There's a lot of them. I don't know how you got in, but you're not going to get to just pull up the chair and stay here. And once you can make that decision, then you have to take action. And I don't think you win, Brad, by fighting the thought now, hey, you didn't come from the Lord. Why? Because you're fear. Fear doesn't come from God. So I know you didn't come from God. So now I'm going to fight you fear in Jesus' name. Now, I think the way that you you win that battle in that moment is going back to what is true. So I don't think we win by fighting the enemy. We win by clinging to the truth. Mm. And so you've got to have a narrative to go back to. And I've talked about this a lot lately. You know, once you write a book, you do a lot of interviews. And the interviews, you come up with better ways to say the things that you wrote in the book. So uh, one of the things that's, I wish I had written it in the book this way, but this whole idea, you're not going to make it. That all of us wrestle with that. You're not going to make it through this season, this situation, this circumstance, uh, this trial, uh, this fallout, whatever it is, you're not going to make it. The only reason, well, we A, know that didn't come from God because we examined it, listened to it. Wait a minute, I'm not going to make it? Okay, I don't think Jesus told me that today. Good morning, Louie. You're not going to make it. I've never heard him say that. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard him say, I don't know, man. I've never woken up and said, good morning, Lord. And he went, whoa, I don't know about today, man. So if I'm hearing that and repeating that, I know it didn't come from the Lord. So I immediately know I've got to address that thought. And the enemy's telling me, Louis, you're not going to make it through this fill in the blank. And I just say, wait a minute, you told me that last time, but here I am. I made it by the grace of God. It wasn't easy. I've got scars. I might have stumbled through it, but I made it by the grace of God. And the only way you can lie to me and tell me I'm not going to make it is because I actually did make it. And so immediately now, I don't want to deal with him anymore. I just want to turn my eyes on the Lord. And if you ask me, Louis, how are you doing? And it's a difficult season. Like we're in a difficult season right now with family issues. I'm not going to say, oh man, life's fantastic. I'm going to say, man, we're going through some hard stuff, but I'm going to make it. I believe I'm going to make it. I believe we're going to make it by the grace of God. And so I have a new narrative based on truth. And so just check what you're saying to people. And if it doesn't sound like God, then you got to ask yourself, where where did I pick that up? (laughs) Where did I hear that? And it's most likely that the enemy is at your table. And and are those coming from other voices? I mean, when they're coming in, is it other people's voices in your life? Obviously, it's it's... Uh, even in your head, what what does that look like? Well, I think that's the question that you know we could argue all day long. I mean, talk to a neuroscientist or talk to a pastor, talk to a psychologist, and everybody's going to want to slice it a different way. Is that the enemy voice? You know, the enemy is an omnipresent, so I don't know that he shows up at everybody's table and the enemy himself is talking to you. But is it a seed of doubt that he planted, or is it a seed of doubt that he used your parents to plant? 
Is it a seed of doubt that he used a friend or a circumstance or a situation to plan? For me, I, I grew up in a worrying house. That's what I learned to do. Uh, if I, if, you know, I got some good worriers in my lineage, and watching my mom and dad taught me how to worry very good. I'm excellent at it. <laughs> but um, So I'm not going to say the enemy put worry in my mind. But God didn't put the worry in my mind. Right. So that's the clearest answer. It doesn't matter if it's my thoughts or what I was brought up with or if it is the enemy or a lie that a friend told me or the fallout of a circumstance that went sideways and now I'm kind of doubting whether there really is a God or if he's a good God. It doesn't matter. All that is not coming from my heavenly Father. So it's being influenced, as Jesus said, by the thief who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Is this something that we have to do daily? Is it hourly? It's hourly. It's moment by moment. The Christian life is not meant to be lived from Sunday to Sunday. That is a bad plan and a, a, a fateful strategy. And it's not meant to be lived from my quiet time to my next quiet time. This is one of the real fallacies, I think, of that way of thinking. And I, I love the devotional life, and I love to come into the Great Assembly I'm going to be in the Great Assembly, whether it's a Sunday or a Saturday night or a Wednesday night, whenever it is, I want to be there. And I want to be devotional. I want to have those moments where you pull away, you withdraw, you're with God. But if you think your quiet time is going to get you to your next quiet time, boy, that better be a really good quiet time because you got 23 and a half hours of life to live in between. So the Christian life is meant to be lived moment by moment. I think it's meant to be lived breath by breath. And, you know, it's it's an aware, it's a constant awareness of God in me and with me, and a constant dependence on God with me and in me to do with me and in me the things that I cannot do on my own. And that leads to the phrase that we see in scripture, pray without ceasing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that looks like. That's breathing in and breathing out the goodness and the grace of God. And do you recommend we we are verbally uh, you know, responding? When you can talk out loud, when you can read the Bible out loud, when yeah. you can pray out loud. Yeah. Um, praying in your mind is great, but you're gonna you're gonna see your thoughts drift. Um, praying sitting in a comfortable chair is great, but your thoughts drift far less if you're kneeling when you're praying, and far, far less if you're praying out loud on your knees when you're praying. And I say the place where the enemy has the least opportunity to slide up to the table is when you're on your knees with God praying out loud. Hmm. That's a good picture. You, you said this, uh, I don't know if this is in the book per se, but you said it on a recent interview, and I, I thought this was so powerful. Uh, flesh wants to be validated in weakness compared to the Spirit elevating our weakness into God's strength. That'll preach right there. I think that, you know, I have a tendency to to want to see the gravitational pull of life come down to my level. And God is always wanting to see the supernatural move of life to pull us up to God's level. And so the flesh, you know, we, we've got issues, we've got problems, we've been hurt. All of us have been through hardship. All of us have had something said about us that wasn't true or had somebody treat us in a way that wasn't fair. And I'm not talking about little things. Some of us have been massively wounded by people. And I'm not trying to brush that aside at all. But if, if we let 
earth do its work, it will pull us down to the level of our flesh. And then we'll be looking for a theology or a book or anybody who will validate the weakness that we have experienced, the hurt that we've experienced, the pain that we've experienced, the dysfunction that we're living in. I mean, good goodness gracious, you talk to people now and they introduce themselves with, hi, I'm so-and-so. I have this condition, this condition, this condition, and this condition. It's kind of part of the intro now, just letting you know ahead of time, this is me. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a condition, but what happens is we begin to feel that pull down to validate the weakness of life. And what God is wanting to do is not ignore the weakness of life, but He's wanting to use the weakness of life to lift us up into His sphere of influence so that there's a a passage in Scripture that says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's in the context of Him talking about how His grace is sufficient, and it's even more sufficient when you have a weakness. So if there is a weakness, boast in that weakness because Mm. that's giving God a massive opportunity to come into the weakness and to show His strength. I'm a lot more comfortable sometimes hiding behind the weakness because that gives me an excuse for why I can't. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to open this weakness up to God and trust that somehow through it, He's going to do what I can't do. And when I do that, Brad, it pushes me into a zone of, I got to transcend. I got to rise above this. I want to I want to look like LeBron playing basketball, the junior varsity basketball team at my school. Mm-hmm. He's just coming down to court and taking two steps, jumping over both teams and dunking the basketball without even looking. And that's, that's transcendence, and we're a part of that. Yeah. So we should be thinking this way. God can lift me up. He can, he can, he can call me up. I don't have to live down at this level uh, my entire life. I love the promise of this too. Uh, what would you say is the you know the ultimate promise of of Psalm twenty three? The ultimate promise, and this is going to be a curveball for somebody listening. There are two major promises in Psalm twenty three. Number one, we're going to get good. I mean, what what better verse? The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. Nobody else is selling that. Nobody on planet Earth is selling that. So that's good. That's that's going to be good for me. I'm going to get led. I'm going to get fed. I'm going to get protected. I'm going to be guided. Uh, I'm going to be anointed. I'm going to have abundance. I'm going to be followed in a good way by goodness and love. I've got a destination I can count on. I have a shepherd who cares about me. Um, this is good. So that's A. But the B thing that happens in Psalm 23 is that the shepherd ends up looking really, really good. Hmm. So that's the little twist that I think most people are going to miss unless they got that revelation of the glory of God. So at the end of the day, um, it's very rare that you would say, man, that is the best sheep I have ever seen. In sheep world, you say, man, that shepherd, that's the guy you want to be your shepherd right there. And so the, the table and the presence of the enemies, why is a table in the presence of the enemy and not just in God's presence? So that people get a front row seat of watching God be sufficient for us in the midst of the storm. Hmm. Is there any stories from feedback from the book, you know, folks emailing or, or that you've talked to where you've spoken at an event or a gathering that stand out for you? 
Well, there's, uh, you know, the talk has been around a while. The book's only been out just a little bit, and we're just starting to hear the the trickle factor. Most people are just saying, this is really helping me. But I was in a restaurant a few weeks ago, and it's funny now, Brad, because anytime I'm in a restaurant, people always come by and say, I don't want to be that guy. I read your book. <laughs> but you um, just did. You just were. <laughs> and And again, that was a super nice guy then, and I welcome anyone to come and say hello anytime, even though I'm an introvert. But this just guy- Just give him the head nod, by the way, folks. Just give the head <laughs> nod to Louie next time. Yeah. We're in a restaurant, and this guy comes up, and he said he just slides a napkin from the restaurant onto the table. And I can see that he's written on every square, you know, centimeter of this napkin. And he says, I don't want to interrupt. And he kind of gives me the look like, ha ha. He said, but, um, and then he's gone. And so I just kind of slide the napkin off the table because in a moment like that, you're just trying to be low key. And, but I was really, really wanted to read it like right then, but I didn't want to just stop the meal and go, hey, everybody, you want to talk what you want to, I want to read this napkin. So I just slid it into my pocket. And as soon as the conversation kind of got going a different way and people weren't looking, I slid it out and I opened it up and he wrote on it, um, thank you so much for don't give the enemy a seat at your table. My daughter is struggling with an eating disorder right now. And we, my teenage daughter, and we are going through the book together. And it is really giving her practical ways to win this battle in her mind. And man, I'm telling you, I got tears in my eyes just reading it. The note is on a little um, piece of metal with a magnet in the little room I work in, right above us, literally right now. It's just sitting right there. Because when I come to work and I sit down, I I, want to just be able to, to A, pray for that father and the daughter and B, to just remember, this is what God called me to in my apartment back in the day when I, I was ending my tennis career, glory days in my mind. I was going to be such a great tennis pro. Um, I was going to give all the glory to God. Um, <laughs> and then just you know circle around through my seven homes I had throughout the world, but I was going to give all the glory to God. But now that I come and show up in this calling that I'm called to, Brad, I want to remember and so for a season, I'm sure for a long season, that napkin will stay right there above the, the workstation where I work, just to remind me that that's what God has called me to do and the privilege he's given me. There are many things that you, as a friend of mine, have shaped me, uh, also as a pastor and also as a church. People who may not be close to Passion City Church and to the Passion Movement, they hear all this talk of a Jesus church. Unpack that a little bit for us, because that's one of the things for me that has probably profoundly changed my spiritual arc, is being part of a Jesus church and being okay with Jesus language. And so many may not know the, the background of that, the story, the why, but tell us a little bit about, you know, why is that so important? Well, I hope people understand this because people listening to us right now, I'm guessing a lot of them are in churches, and there are a lot of streams of the church and a lot of denominations and a lot of different descriptors of church, and um, that's great. But denominationalism as a whole can have a lot of pitfalls because we become identified by the label that is put on us. In fact, I face this all the time because I I travel in and through a lot of streams. 
And when I'm around people who are more in uh, Holy Spirit streams, um, they're suspect of me because I came from a Baptist church. And so I have to, I, the label of Baptist churches is, oh, there's no Holy Spirit in a Baptist church. And you came from a Baptist church and you went to a Baptist seminary, so you must not be filled with the Spirit. And so I don't know what you're doing at our deal because we're all in this Spirit stream over here. And then they get around me and they're like, oh, you seem like you're also filled with the Spirit and we're all in this together. And so you had to, I had to jump over a label. And then if I meet a Lutheran, they might have to jump over a label. Mm-hmm. And if a Lutheran meets a Methodist, they might have to jump over a label. And they're a four-square church, and they're in the Bible church, and they're from the Pentecostal church, and they're from this church. And, and I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think Jesus said, I'm going to build a denomination. He said, I'm going to build my church. Mm. And I don't think we need to erase all the denominations, and I don't believe that they're on this planet Earth. There's ever going to be a moment where it's just like there's just one church, and we're all in it with Jesus together. There's always going to be fragmenting, and there's always going to be segmenting. But when we planted Passion City Church, I was like, let's try to jump over as many hurdles as possible. And so let's let's don't be anti-denominational. I'm not that. But let's also don't be non-denominational because that's another label. Let's just be a church that wants to shine the light of Jesus in the community, in the city, and in the world. It doesn't mean we don't believe in God the Father, and it doesn't believe we don't believe in God the Holy Spirit. It just means that the Father sent the Son and said, this is my Son, and the Holy Spirit, it says in the Scripture, He loves to elevate Jesus. So Father, Son, and Spirit, together, we elevate Jesus, the name above all names. And so when people ask me, and they ask me all the time, so, so oh, you're a pastor. Oh, first question. What do you think the first question is? Oh, what, what denomination? Yeah, what kind of church is it? Yeah. Every person I meet and hears that I'm a pastor says, well, what kind of church is it? And right there, they're going to put me in a box right then and there. Oh, well, it's Catholic church. Oh, okay, good. All right. Well, we're Episcopals. Oh, well, we're the new the new Canaan this, or we're the you know, <laughs> Mount Calvary that, or we're the whatever, whatever. And then they go, oh, I know now who you are. Yeah, yeah. And it's a pretty big curveball when I say, well, we're just a Jesus church. And there's always a pause. And so I have to fill in the blank because I don't want to make them feel awkward. I say, we just want to follow Jesus. We love Jesus. We believe Jesus is the answer for the world. And then, you know, they can kind of decide how they want to play it after that. But I... I when I used to say, well, we're just a Jesus church, people would say, oh, you're non-denominational. I was like, no, we're not non-denominational. We're just a Jesus church. I got a few uh, a few hot seat things for you just to get to know Louis Giglio a bit more because we're all leaning in. We're, we're here on the Passion and Purpose podcast. We're, we're saying yes. Um, when you were playing tennis, who was your tennis idol? Well, uh, you'd have to be old like me to even know who these people are. Uh, but Arthur Ashe was uh, probably the guy that I, I looked up to the most as a tennis player. And Arthur Ashe uh, passed away in another season, and people wouldn't have heard of him, a lot of people. But the the stadium court at the U.S. Tennis Center in New York, where the U.S. Open is played, is called Arthur Ashe Stadium for a reason. And he was a Grand Slam winner, but he had an amazing serve. And I was talking about this actually at our Young Adults the other night. This is before there was any video YouTube or any way to like watch Arthur S. serve. The only way you knew how he served was there were photographs of him serving. 
And that's how my dad would learn how to golf swing, same era. He'd read golf magazine, I'm reading tennis magazine, and he's looking at Gary Player's swing in photographs. Here's the back swing. Here's the top of the swing. Here's the downswing. Here's contact. And you're just looking, and then you're trying to mimic every frame. And I was doing that with Arthur Ashe, um, other great players in that era, Rod Laver, Yvonne Gulagon, uh, Jimmy Connors came up through that era. But um, Arthur Ashe was a guy I loved. And it's funny because I played doubles with a guy in my neighborhood, Ray Dukes. And he was a lot better tennis player than me, A. That's how we got as far as we did in the doubles. And B, his mom bought him the Arthur Ashe head racket. Hello. And it had like an aluminum um, frame laminate on it. It wasn't an aluminum racket, but it was a wooden racket with a like an aluminum laminate. And it was so cool. And I, my family just couldn't get there. And so the, below that was the red um, racket, which was the pro. And then below that was the blue and the little blue throat plastic. And that was the entry level. And I started with the blue and I finally worked my way up to the red, but I just, we couldn't swing the Arthur Ashe racket, but he was a legend. Um, and those guys in that era, Rod Laver, you know, the lefty from Australia, Jimmy Connors, Guillermo Vilas. I mean, these are names that people who are in my generation will know. Chris Everett was the women's tennis player of the moment. And I started out with a wooden Chris Everett racket before I actually. Oh, you had a up. women's racket? It, it was a women's <laughs> racket. It was a wooden racket, but it was a Chris Everett wooden racket. And uh, so that's the era that I started playing tennis in. If, uh, if you were given the choice between London or Paris? No choice. That's a simple one. It, the, given a choice between London and anywhere, the answer is going to be London. Oh, so London is at the top of the, of the list. London's at the top of the list. It's Shelley and I's favorite city, obviously. Our dog is named London for a reason. If we, we live in a little townhouse that has an elevator in it, and if you get in the elevator, which is about you know smaller than a phone booth, the whole wall of the elevator is Big Ben, um, a print of Big Ben. We, we really, 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 really love London. I mean, I would definitely get on on the train, on the fast track train and go under the English Channel and have lunch in Paris. But um, London would win. Wimbledon or uh, Tour de France? Okay, well, that's a couple different classes going on. Um, uh, if or maybe you, a combo. Yeah, I have never witnessed any of the Tour de France, but there was an era where I would, I was the guy that watched the Tour de France every night for three weeks every summer. And obviously, when the um, Tour de France blew up and professional, you know, cycling blew up, it kind of was a bummer for everybody. And I got back on and watched a few of the the hot category climbs for those who like to watch cycling this year. Those are the categories that are beyond rating where these guys are going straight up stuff for a long, long time. I watched a few of those this year and it was awesome. But Wimbledon's great. Shelly and I have had the privilege of going to all four majors. So we've been to Australian Open, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, and U.S. Open. And Wimbledon is, you know, it's hard to beat, but you got to wear a suit uh, if you want to go in certain places and socks. So that's pretty weird. Uh <laughs> You're sitting out there watching tennis in a suit <laughs> and socks. And I don't wear socks hardly anywhere, but I loved it. And um, have some friends who work with Stan Smith, who's also another legend that's bigger than the shoe. He actually was a great tennis player and, you know, pretty big inspiration back in that era as well. Stan, sorry I didn't mention you earlier. Um, so we've gotten a chance to 
have some pretty great experiences at the majors. I think Roland Garris is probably our favorite of all of those. So Paris wins out on that. Yeah. Side by the of way, things. for all of you who are younger, Stan Smith really was a tennis player. Actually, not just a shoe played. Guy. He has a big a book called. Um, it, well, what's the title of the book? More than a shoe, or not just a shoe? Because a lot of people are like, "Oh yeah, he's the guy on the on the tongue of my uh, oh Stan Smith tennis shoes." Yeah, yeah, he was a fantastic tennis player and is a great guy. Okay, greatest Auburn football moment in person for you? Uh, two things come to mind. One, we beat Florida in the swamp on a last pass when they were ranked number one. And I'd driven all night, literally all through the night from a youth event in Tennessee, in West Tennessee, all the way to the swamp and literally ran to the stadium with my friend David Bell. And we walked in as they were singing the national anthem and we ended up winning on the last play of the game. I want to say our current current quarterback, Bo Nix's dad, Patrick Nix, threw a touchdown pass. We won that game. But the greatest of all was the prayer at Jordan Hare. And for a season, I was uh, working alongside the chaplain at Auburn and with the team all the time. And we had this crazy year going. And the Georgia game, Nick Marshall just heaves it down the field. I don't know why the Georgia defensive back tries to catch it. He should have just knocked it down, but the ball flips over his head, the other defensive back's head, and Ricardo Lewis doesn't even know where the ball is, turns around, full stride, ball falls into his hands, bounces off his fingertips. He finally collects it and runs the 15 yards into the end zone, and we miraculously win the game. And I'm standing literally this far from him when it happens, praying out loud. I'm sorry to say it. I don't believe God changes the outcomes of games, but I'm praying during the play, Jesus, we need a miracle in Jesus' name, and it happens. And I'm just going to say it on the podcast. I don't think God influences the outcome of sporting events, but I do believe he did that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's let's end with the, the... the moment uh, that is most defining in the in the story of passion. I know that's a, such a hard question, but is there a moment? There's two moments I want to talk about them real fast. I know we're probably out of time, and you're running this show, not me. Um, hey, this is your podcast. We, man. we were headed to an event called One Day in, in the year 2000, and this is what we thought passion was going to be all about. So this vision we had was for a fuse, not for a monument. No one ever dreamed there would be a passion house, a passion church, a passion organization. No one. This is a fuse. It's going to go for a minute. Something's going to blow up. And when it blows up, nobody's going to even know where the fuse was. We wanted to see an awakening happen among the 18 million university students in America. And we knew by the statistics of a survey that a quarter of a million of them were taking coming into their freshman year of school, we knew that 80% of them did not know Jesus. And we didn't have time to wait around. We needed an awakening. And that's why Passion was born. First year, 2,000 people showed up. Second year, five. Second, third year, 11,000. And we were like, we don't have time. We, we can't go this way. We can't go 22,000 next year, 44,000 the next year, 80,000 the next year. We, we're running out of time. There are 18 million college students who are going to sleep again tonight, and they don't even know why they're on planet Earth. And so we just called on the, the world to have a solemn assembly called One Day 2000. We didn't even call it Passion. One Day 2000. We never announced a speaker. We never announced a band. We said, if you love Jesus and want to pray for your generation, show up on a field in Memphis, Tennessee, bring a tent, 
and it's going to be holy. We're going to cordon off the main field where the big stage is, and you're not going to step on that till the day of the event. We're going to camp in 10 campsites around it. You're going to have worship and prayer in those campsites, but only on the day called one day do we walk on this field. And the only person on that field for 48 hours were kids taking one-hour shifts going up a wooden stand to read the Word of God over Mm. that field. And we read the entire Word of God over that field for two days, not a soul on it. We told people, don't bring a Frisbee. Don't don't come uh, just thinking it's going to be some kind of festival. This is holy ground. And to get there, we had a couple things happening. We had a tour bus going to 120 campuses. And almost every other night, they were leading worship on some campus from the U.S. Naval Academy to Pepperdine to you name it, just saying, come to one day. People are like, what is one day? Just come to one day. Who's passion? Just come to one day. <laughs> If you love God and you want to see awakening in your generation, show up at one day, May 20th, 2000. We also did eight regional events around the country, Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, Northern California, D.C., Atlanta, Dallas. And we do these big regional events, just pulling people together regionally to say, get to one day. And then we were hustling, Brad, to use your term, and going anywhere and everywhere to talk to any college pastor we could go to. And so two things that came out of that. Uh, Number one, you're always going to face opposition if you have a big vision. And we showed up at um, Cal Berkeley. I don't know if anybody's ever been to Cal Berkeley, but uh, not the most Jesus-loving place on planet Earth even then. And we showed up at a ministry house, and it was a luncheon. They had invited about, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 college pastors. So, of course, four showed up. They didn't know who we were. Some guys from Atlanta are here. They want to talk about something that's happening in Tennessee. They thought Tennessee was like, you know, going back in history 50 years. Why would we want to go to Tennessee? (laughs) I was like, hey, it's okay. I live in the South. It's not, you know, it's not bad. So here we're at the lunch, and as soon as it gets started, these college girls show up, and they just come up to the door of this little uh, ministry house. It's a two-story house that's got the offices of this campus ministry. They're like, hey, we're here for the passion event. We're like, you mean the luncheon? No, the passion event. We we saw it on email that there was going to be a passion event here today. Like, you know, is Charlie Hall here? And um, we're like, no, this this is a college minister's lunch. And they're like, well, we just drove you from the University of Sacramento, from UC Sacramento. We just drove two hours to get here today. And we're like, come on in and have lunch. We have uh, sub sandwiches, have one. So now we're in this little room. I'm not kidding. Uh, We're in this little room upstairs with a TV and a VHS where we're playing the promo video for one day. And they're five college leaders there and these two college girls who came two and a half hours and are so disappointed they're sitting in a room with adults. <laughs> and what we're getting from the the college leaders is this is the worst thing we've ever heard of. There's no way in, in the world we would come to this. Why would we want to come to some big thing in Tennessee? So we play the video. I do the pitch. And this one guy's just been giving me the uh, wasting my time look for about 30 minutes. And he goes, well, I don't know what you guys are thinking, 
to the other guys. He says, and I, I don't even remember this guy. I don't know his name, and I'm sure he's a lovely person. I don't know what you guys are thinking, but I'd like to hear what the college girls think. And I mean, it was just so thick in the room. It was so tense. And I've been in a lot of rooms like that, sharing the vision of passion with thousands of people over my lifetime. Tons of them have told me, that's a terrible idea. That's never going to work. And so I'd like to hear what the college girls have to say. And I'm like, oh, man. And so this college girl says, I'd like to say something. And she reaches under her chair and pulls her backpack around and unzips her backpack and pulls her journal out. And she opens her journal to some recent page. And she said, I, I would just like to say, if I could read this entry. And this is paraphrasing, of course. This is a long time ago. She said, now her voice started breaking and huge tears got in her eyes. And she said, she's reading now, Dear Father, I desperately pray for an awakening in my generation, something bigger than I could even dream of or imagine. I pray for a move of God that would go from north to south and east to west and would sweep my generation of collegiate friends into the goodness and the glory of God. I don't know where. And I don't know when, and I'm too small of a person to imagine such a thing. But if you would ever do something like this in my generation, I want to be a part. And she looked at the guy who had asked her, and she said, I will be in Memphis. And, you know, I, I couldn't breathe. And I experienced in that moment what we've experienced in some form or fashion many, many, many times from that point to here. And it's that moment where you just can breathe and go, I, I thought for a minute we might have lost our minds. But praise God, we're in the wind. And I'm pretty sure none of those college guys made it to Memphis. And I'm pretty sure none of them even announced it at their organizations. I do know that that girl was there from Sacramento, California. But more than that, everybody else on that one-day field was there because of her. Because in that moment, our resolve was galvanized. We are in and we will not be daunted. And I'm not kidding. Uh, God has done that so many places and so many times and in so many different ways. But that was one of the most uh, profound moments of my life. And so here we all arrive at in Memphis. And I mean, it's hard. It's, it's just, it's, you know, tooth and nail to get there. So many obstacles, so many hurdles. And then we get there, and then we get to the day, and there, here we all are. And it's Beth Moore and Vodie Bauckham and John Piper and myself and Matt Redman and Crowder and Charlie Hall and Nathan and Christy and Chris. And um, I'm sure there's a speaker I'm not thinking about. And we were all side stage bred under this tent. And it's maybe 10 in the morning. It's misting, of course. It's raining a little bit. 
and there's a little fog of mist and it's uh and it's just quiet 40 plus thousand college students are on this field they've been shuffling in from these 10 campsites and taking their place out on this big hillside and it's just quiet nobody's doing the jesus chant there's no mexican wave going on it's just people just quiet and it's time to start and under that tent this has never happened before or since in my life i don't remember who was supposed to go first but um i was like okay we prayed let's do it go let's say it's you all right, you're on. And whoever it was looked at the circle and said, I'm not going up there. Literally, not jokingly. And then just looked at the next person, Piper, you go up there. You go. We don't need any order here. You go. I'm not going. Chris, you go. I'm not going up there. I've never been in a place before where people who We're so committed to not going up on a stage because none of us wanted to stand in that place. (laughs) And reluctantly, someone finally went up and the whole day was like that. And it was exactly, I believe, what that girl had been praying for. And I believe the arrows of it are still being flung far and wide across the world today. And there have been so many moments of passion like that but those we'll never forget.